series. works better when I turn it on. Uh, our sermon series this summer is called What Does the Bible Say About? And what we're doing is we're preaching on topics that you have requested. And so you'll find in your bulletin one of these sheets. Feel free to continue to fill these out and, and submit questions. So uh, last week we talked about uh, the end times in the sermon. That was a question that came up. And then on our Deleted Scenes broadcast on Thursday, we were able to talk about a couple of specific questions that also got submitted about the end times. So we talked about the mark of the beast, and we talked about the nation state of Israel, and a couple of other things. And so please continue to submit these. Uh, and w- the way you submit them is you put them in the box at the back of the room, the same place where you put your connection card, or you can just leave it on your seat when you go, and we'll go around and collect them as we clean up. Today, we are talking about the most requested subject we have had so far. Today, we are talking about what the Bible says about baptism. So, we've had a lot of questions about this, and also these questions tended to be more specific about what they wanted to know about baptism. And I've been looking forward to talking about this subject because this this topic actually played a role in my journey and my my quest. I've told you a few times that I've been on this kind of quest in my journey as a Christian to learn to read the Bible without uh, lenses that tell me what it has to mean. I want to read what the Bible actually says on its own and get my lenses from the Bible. And baptism was kind of the first step for me. When I started as a pastor, as a youth pastor at Enterprise Christian Church, I was challenged to do this with the subject of baptism, and it really was an interesting journey for me to go on, so we kind of get to revisit some of that. So I, I personally know the question behind the question here. I've experienced this. Because when you start reading the Bible and, and just with a bl- as blank a slate as a person can manage and say, what does the Bible say about baptism? To me, there is something very consistent and very clear that the lenses I was taught to read the Bible with did not allow me to see. And that is that the Bible talks about baptism as if something actually happens in the water. See, I was taught that baptism was merely an external symbol, just something that you did to publicly declare something that had already happened. It didn't really do anything. It was, you could do it when you feel like it, and, and if you felt like it, but it wasn't very important, except as a symbol. And as I started to actually read what Scripture said about baptism, what I couldn't find that symbolic language anywhere in there. There was language that I thought was symbolic, and it, it's not. But the Bible actually talks about baptism as if something is really happening. I'll give you an example. So, very first sermon preached in the, in the New Testament. You know, when, when we preach a sermon, we, we end our services with an invitation because we want to give people a chance every time they participate in worship to be able to respond. And that's a tradition that goes back to the very first sermon given after the, after the ascension at Pentecost when Peter preached to the people of Jerusalem, and he gave an invitation at the end. And here's the invitation he gave. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the way that's phrased, if you read it without a lens that tells you what it can't mean, what you see is there seems to be a connection between getting baptized and the forgiveness of your sins and receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, it's, it's not super specific on what that connection is, but there does seem to be a connection. And if we were to go through all the times that the New Testament talks about baptism, you would find that it's always describing baptism as having done something. That's very consistent in the language. 
But for me, when I first started to see that, my bells started go, my warning bells started to go off in my head because I can't, it can't say that because it also, this is the verse that would usually come up in my head when I'm reading that, it also says this, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And that verse I was taught was like the governing verse of everything had to be filtered through my interpretation of what that verse says. And when I read that baptism seems to do something, the problem is that seems to contradict the idea that we're saved by faith. You know, I was taught that when you put your faith in Jesus, that's it. It's done. And everything else is just a reaction to that. But you're saved. And so that you can't... Actually, I've told you before that I was in a heresy trial, and it was because I... I actually included in my... Someone asked me how I would lead someone to Christ, and I said something more than just put your faith in Jesus. And that got me in trouble. I mean, well, with that person. The elders ended up not doing anything with it. But that person at least tried to, tried to come at me. Anyway, uh, weird way to put that. The point is, um, that kind of... To say that there's something... The baptism plays some kind of role in that, or, or something actually happens to the water, it seems to contradict the idea that we're saved by faith. Because you put your faith in Jesus, and that's it, right? That's, that's the moment. That's, when, that's how you're saved. And so there will be people who will say, not only doesn't baptism have anything to do with it, but it can't have anything to do with it because you can say nothing other than faith. You say faith, and you say grace, and that's it. That's the only thing you can say about salvation. But then there are people who will read it the other way, and you get all the way to the other end of the scale where people will say not only is baptism is essential for salvation, it basically is salvation, and you have to be baptized by our people in our way, believing what we believe about baptism for it to work. Right? Like super specific, like you've got to have it done the right way by our person, in the right place, with the right water, saying the right words. You know, like there's this whole spectrum that we get, where on one hand it's merely a symbol, and on the other hand it is salvation itself. Like there's, there's nothing else to salvation except getting dunked, and everywhere in between. And so you may not realize that there is this scale or this, this tension in the way people interpret the Bible if you come from a tradition where everybody agreed, and so there didn't seem like there was tension. But there is this question, what is baptism? What does it actually do? And what role does it play in becoming a Christian? These are real questions that we need to ask as we're understanding what the New Testament says. And so today, what I want to do is I want to give you a third possibility, which, because I believe that it is what Scripture says. I don't believe Scripture says symbol, and I don't believe Scripture says that baptism is salvation. I believe Scripture says something different. Because I'm a pastor, I made sure they all start with the same letter. It's not a symbol. It's not salvation itself. What we're going to talk about today is a kind of a technical word, sacrament. Now, for some, the word sacrament may have its own warning bells that it's associated with. So I, but it is the best word to describe what the Bible is actually saying. So what I want to do now is I'm going to start by just building the biblical case for what I mean when I talk about a sacrament. And then we're going to look at baptism and what it means to understand baptism as a sacrament. So, we're going to start in a place where I think we can all be on the same page. When we're talking about, this is where sacrament, the idea of sacrament starts, okay? God gives human beings a role in sharing his grace with others. A few weeks ago, I did a sermon on grace. We talked about how grace is God's generosity. 
A lot of times when we're talking about grace, we're talking about the fact that He is generous when He saves us, but God is generous to us in many ways, and all of those count as God's grace. When God offers healing, when God offers comfort, all kinds of things God, anything God does for us really is generous, and He uses people to share that generosity, right? He, for, for whatever reason, He decided to use flawed people like us to do His work. And we see this very clearly. Jesus tells the disciples this at the Last Supper. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Is that, that, always, that, for, that statement always puzzled me. Like, it made me uncomfortable. He says, they'll do greater things than these, like greater things than Jesus. But when you think about it, that actually is true. More people have been reached and Whoa. More people have been reached and healed through what God has done through the church than what Jesus did in person, right? In the three years of his ministry. He's done more actually through the church. He's still the one doing it, so it's not like we can say we did better. God is the one doing it, but he's acting through the church, and he, he actually ascended so that he could be our advocate and work through us to share God's grace with the world. And so that's what we do. We are God's agents to share His generosity with the world. Sometimes, God gives us specific instructions for how to share His grace with other people. He tells us the way He wants us to share grace with other people. And when God gives us those certain actions to express His grace, that's what we call sacraments. They are actions that we do that take on special significance because of what God does through them. They're not magic, they're not our power or our ability, but they are something that, because God said to do it this way, and said that He will act through those actions, we trust that what we do is more than what we do. What I, here's, let me give you an example. Communion is an example. Every week, we eat a bit of bread and drink a bit of juice. And it's not a particularly filling meal, it's probably not the best bread or the best juice you've ever had in your life. I, I mean, it's not bad, but it's just not, it's, you don't come here because of, like, that, you know, how it tastes or something like that, right? But there's something different that happens because Jesus said to do it. And he said when he did it, he would be present. Jesus made it something different, right? And so because he gave us those instructions, we can say that something different is happening. Not because we have some magical ability to do anything. People have gotten that mistaken idea with communion. Did you know that the word abracadabra comes from the Latin phrases that were used when they held up the bread in the Catholic Church and it, became, it was supposed to become the body of Christ? And they thought the magic words did something. The, the people listening. The, I don't know that anybody's ever taught that, that, but that's what people interpreted from it. But that's not what's going on. It's simply because God has said, Jesus said, do it this way. I will act through what you are doing. And this, and this is how Paul talks about it. So Paul will say in 1 Corinthians about communion, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? For Paul, when you take communion, you're doing something more than just eating a bit of bread and drinking a bit of juice. You're actually participating in the body and blood of Christ. And so God said, do it this way, and I will act through that, and that's a sacrament, an action that, because of God, takes on more significance than just a physical thing we do. 
why does God do sacraments? Why does He have us do these things? Well, God made us, and God understands us. And He understands that human beings are physical beings. We like to think that we're just spirits riding around in a meat vehicle, but we're actually embodied people. Like, your body is an essential part of who you are. That's why you get a new one in the end, right? Because we're supposed to be embodied. And that means we experience things, and those experiences are important, and God knows that. He made us that way. And so He gives us experiences in order to help form us. That's what sacraments become. Sacraments give us experiences of grace that shape our identity. None of us got to be there to witness the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? We didn't get to have that direct experience. And yet, through communion, we get to experience that together. In a, even though we know it happened somewhere else, sometime else, we get to experience it in communion. And that experience shapes us. Because in that verse that I read you from Paul, where he's talking about the, the participation in the blood and body of Christ, he's making a point to the congregation in Corinth about what, it should, what that experience should mean to them. He says, because there, the very next verse, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. What he's doing is he's, he's saying, remember that meal that you took. This is what you should have learned from it. Every week you come together and you take one loaf. One type. We don't have like bread for this pe- group, like this type of bread for this group of people and this type of bread for this type of... Like, we don't have separate groups. The experience of how God told you to take communion should tell you something about what it means to receive God's grace. We all receive the same grace from the same source. And so we are one body. Communion, the experience of communion teaches us that. And Paul basically expects them to have learned that because that's what the experience teaches us. So there seems to be intention from God about why he asks us to share his grace in specific ways. They teach us something. They shape us in certain ways. They shape our identity. Now, if you've been, if you're, you know, hair has been standing up in the back of your head as long as I've been talking about sacraments, you pr- it's probably because you know that this idea, this logic, can be abused. Because what can happen when we infuse our actions with God's grace is we might start to think that we can control God's grace. Or that we, it's like we've been given a gun and we get to decide when and where to shoot it. And that's, that is one way that this has all been abused. But it's very important for us to understand when we're talking about sacraments. Sacraments do not limit what God can do. Okay? That's not what they do. They are not there to limit what God can do. I'll give you an example. When we're talking about baptism, if you go back and you read this verse that we started with, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What we can learn from that is that baptism is, is Peter is saying, if you, when you get baptized, it is the forgiveness of your sins and receiving the Holy Spirit are tied to that. But what some people have said is that means that the only way these things can happen is if you're baptized. And if you haven't been baptized, or if you haven't been baptized in the right way, these things could not have happened. God cannot give you the Holy Spirit if you haven't been baptized this way. God cannot forgive your sins unless you've been baptized. And that's what we infer from it. But that's a misunderstanding of what sacraments are. And the book of Acts clears that up pretty quickly as you read through the story, because that assumption gets disproven. As you're reading through the story, pretty soon you get into Acts chapter 8, where a Christian community has started to grow in Samaria, and the disciples send some people up to check out this, this Christian uh, community in Samaria. 
And it says, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So they've been baptized. And they've been baptized properly because they didn't get rebaptized, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. It's after they are prayed over that they receive the Holy Spirit. Right? Then, in Acts chapter 10, so this, this is happening with Samaritans who were half-Jewish, and most people didn't really consider, the Jews didn't really consider that good enough. So they were, they were, they were like the cousins in the, fam, in the family of Israel. So it, there seems that God was making a point. He wanted the disciples to know for a fact that the Samaritans were included too. Because he makes the same point later with, in chapter 10 with the Gentiles because Peter, God sends Peter to preach to a Gentile. No, no Gentiles have, have ever been considered part of the family of God. They had to become Jews first. But he goes and he preaches to them. And before they ever have a chance to become Jews, this happens. While Peter was speaking those words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Peter says we should baptize them because God is showing us we should baptize them because they've already received the Holy Spirit. Which means they got the Holy Spirit before they got baptized. Now again, what I think is going on is this is God making a point, making it very clear to the witnesses that they are able to be to receive the Holy Spirit without becoming Jews first. Because Gentiles probably would have become they probably would have had them become Jews and then baptize them. But God steps in and says, No, no, you need to know it's because they believe that they receive the Holy Spirit and then they get baptized. But the point is, God acted in the way he chose. The sacrament doesn't control God. So the point of a sacrament is it doesn't define it doesn't limit what God can do. Sacraments limit what we can do in his name. That's what a sacrament does. It means we've been given instructions on how to do this thing, and that's the only way we can do it. Right? God can do things however he wants. He's in charge. But he has given us one way in these sacraments. Those are the specific ways he's given us to act out his grace. So, if you want to participate in the body and blood of Christ, the only way I have, the only way we have to do that is to bring you to the Lord's table. That's the only way he's given us to do it. That's what sacraments do, is they give us God's instructions on the, the way we can share his grace on his authority. If I try and do it some other way, then I, it's just me doing it. It's not God. So that's what sacraments do. They give us a way to act in God's name. Now, understanding what a sacrament is, now we're going to turn and we're going to look at baptism. What does it mean to understand baptism as a sacrament? Well, what we see in Scripture is that baptism is God's chosen way of initiating people into the gospel. In the Bible, when people hear the gospel, they repent of their sins, they turn away from what they, the life they've been living, they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they get baptized. And that, those three things always have, they, they hear the word, they respond to the word, they repent, they believe, and they get baptized. Because that is the, the, the way God chose, the way God gave the disciples to initiate people into the church. In the Great Commission, it says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is the, the way we've been given to initiate people into the gospel, into Christ. 
my, uh, my mentor, Dave Bruce, used to say, you know, if he had said, do a handstand in the corner and gargle peanut butter, that's what we would do. But he said, baptize. And this is the, the way we have been given to initiate. And, and this is important to me to recognize because every once in a while, the church, parts of the church will start to introduce, try and introduce something else. And in the last century, what we've done is we've introduced the sinner's prayer as an alternative to that. This idea, because it's really, it's really helpful when you're doing uh, revivals, to be able to just have everybody say the prayer and say, that's the moment. And so we have this idea that the moment you're initiated is when you say the specific prayer. Well, that's nowhere in the Bible. There is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. There is, you know, the instruction that we, we commit our lives to Christ, that we follow Him, that we put our faith in Him. But the idea that you can remember saying a specific prayer at a specific time as your initiation, that's not in the Bible. The memory that we're supposed to carry with us, according to the Bible, the memory that they point to is baptism. And that's really important because baptism is an incredibly beautiful thing. And it is something that I don't think we realize how badly we need it. Because what happens, for ba- the purpose of baptism, the function of baptism, is to be the moment we experience the forgiveness and acceptance of God. See, on one level, your forgiveness and acceptance by God happens if you locate it somewhere, it happens in his heart, right? God forgives you and accepts you. It's a decision that he makes. It happens in a way, you know, like, how do you even describe where that is? But it, it's not something you necessarily experience. There have been times when people have said, yeah, you get an emotional experience. John Wesley said, you get a strange warming of the heart. Or people would, it used to be, uh, some churches would say, you have to give us a convincing conversion story for us to consider you a Christian. Like, that was part of your test for membership, was tell us your conversion story. You have to have that experience. But the truth is that our, the forgiveness and acceptance that happens in one way, it happens where we can never reach it or experience it. But baptism is given to us as the moment that you experience it. Paul puts it this way. He talks to the Corinthians. He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. <laughs> like people who, who do these things are not part of the kingdom. They're not on board with what God is doing. They're not going to be part of it. And you all, he's saying to them, like, you all, that's what you were. And that's scary, Right? Because I, you know, all of us can locate something on that list that will apply to us, right? So, what's the reassurance if that's if you don't get in? If you if you're the kind of people who do those kind of things, what does he say? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, the sanctification and the justification, those are technical Bible terms that refer to the, kind, the stuff that happens in God's heart and in our heart. You can't measure it. You can't see it. it. But the washing, the washing is an experience that you can have and you can remember. I look at baptism like a wedding. Okay? So, I got married on September 17, 2016. For the record, I was not the first person in our marriage to forget our anniversary date. <laughs> I have, but I wasn't the first. But that's when we got married. Now, 
Does that mean that I didn't love my wife before that day? Does it mean that we weren't committed to each other before that day? No, we wouldn't have gotten married if we didn't already love each other and if we weren't already committed to each other. But my wife's love for me and her commitment to me in a large part or something that happened in her heart, if I need reassurance that she loves me and is committed to me, I look back to that day. Right? I look back to that day and I remember, no, 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 we said the things. We, we gave each other rings. We made the promises in front of people. We signed the paperwork. We, we committed to each other on that day. That's the day it happened. And that memory has, is a powerful experience for me to say that was the day it became real. Even though in many ways it was, those feelings were already true and those commitments were already true, they became real on that day when we went through that ceremony. And that's what baptism does. That's why in the Bible they'll say baptism is when it happened because it's the memory you have of when you experienced it. It's a gift that God gave you so you can say, and here's one person that I love, the way they talk about baptism is Martin Luther. So Martin Luther um, was with his, with his uh, students after hours um, and having a conversation. They were talking about predestination because uh, another part of the Reformation, they were all talking about, you know, you can't really know if you're saved. God just decides beforehand. You'll never really know until you get to heaven. And so they would get all tied up in knots and trying to figure, how do I know if God has saved me? How do I know if I'm predestined? And Martin Luther told them, if somebody tries to suck you into that logic, tell them this. I have been baptized. I believe in Jesus Christ. I received the sacrament, meaning communion. What do I care if I've been predestined or not? Like basically, God gave us these experiences so that we could have the memory of the moment it happened. So that we wouldn't have to get tied into knots. Do you believe? Did you get baptized? Did you, did you have that moment where you went into the water and you came out? Then stop worrying and just live it out. That's what that's supposed to be, is a memory, an experience to say that was the day it happened. Not because the water was magic, but because God gave you and said, you can experience my grace in this moment. And you can know that as surely as you went into the water and came out, you have been washed clean by me. I love that quote, and I, I, I love that. What do I care if I've been predestined? I've been baptized. I believe in Jesus. Another way he says it is, I'm a son of, I, I am a son of God. I've been baptized. I believe in Jesus Christ, who's crucified for me. Leave me alone, devil. You say that. devil starts to whisper in your ear, just tell him that. So baptism gives us that assurance. It's that moment of assurance. But it's not just a moment to reassure you so you can say, okay, I'm baptized. I don't have to worry about it. I can just go on my merry way. Because baptism is also an experience that shapes our identity and our destiny. It shapes how we think about ourselves, and it shapes our understanding of where we're going. Because the interesting thing about the New Testament, when they talk about baptism, when they mention baptism, they're never really talking about baptism. There's never a passage that says, okay, Paul never says, okay, let me explain to you how to get baptized, or even really why to get baptized. What actually happens is he's talking about something else, and he says, okay, remember how you've been baptized? Well, this is how that should change the way you deal with this subject, the way you think about this thing. So, for instance, in Galatians, Paul says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
You all got baptized the same way. You all got baptized into the same person. That means you're all one body. You're all in Christ. So you're all brothers and sisters. Like he's saying, this experience that you all have had should change the way you think about yourself, the way you understand your identity. And not only it gives you assurance that you have been saved, but it gives you assurance of who you are, and it calls you to live that way. We need to treat each other as if we're all baptized into the same Christ. Right? We treat each other, we act as a body as if we are all baptized into the same person, because we are. And then it also changes the way we live our life day to day, the way we deal with sin. In Romans 6, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In the logic of the argument, he's imagining them saying, hey, if God, if Jesus will forgive me for anything, then why do I need to stop sinning? I'll sin, he'll forgive me, we both, you know, I like to sin, he likes to forgive, we'll be fine. It'll be great. And Paul says, if you think that, you don't understand what your baptism meant. Remember your baptism. You went into the water and you died to your old self and you came out a new person. Why would you want to live like that old you? You went under you came back out. You were completely washed. Why would you want any of you to be dirty again? Like that experience of baptism, is he's expecting them to have already been baptized and to, and to remember what that means. And so I would argue that in a way you could take all of the moral teachings of the New Testament, every, every command that the apostles give to the church, you could summarize it in this way. You've been baptized, so live like it. Like, in a way, that's all they're saying. You've been baptized into Christ. You're a new creature in His image. Live like it. And that's the power that baptism gives us. I'm really excited to be preaching about baptism today because we have two baptisms today. And so before I go into our, our final concluding points, I'm going to invite... Um, are, are, I'm going to invite them to come up and go ahead and start getting ready. And there's, but if you can, continue listening, because this is for you first of all. But yeah, go ahead. But these, you know, you're the first ones who really get to apply this. So here's, here's the, the three things that I want you to keep in mind as we, as we wrap, as we conclude on this, okay? Number one, I want you to hear me on this. You are not saved by baptism. Okay? You are not saved by baptism. At the same time, however, I could also say in an important way, you're not saved by faith either. You're saved by God. I think that's important for us to remember that we are saved by a person, a personality, a God who loves you, and He has chosen to save people who put their faith in Him, and He has called those people to express their faith by being baptized. So we're not saved by a particular action. God's not a vending machine that you can put this, this amount of money in or this action in and you get this result because He owes it to you. It's not a transaction. You're saved by a generous God who loves you, calls you to put your faith in Him, and instructs us to be baptized. And here's how I want you to hear that. I don't want you to hear the idea of baptism as a command, as a burden, because it's not. Baptism is a gift of assurance. It gives us a moment when our salvation becomes tangible. 
It gives us an experience that we can use to fight off the devil. But it also gives us an experience that God will use to convict our consciences. That, that sword cuts both ways. But it's a gift of a generous God. He, God could have said, you know what, I'm going to save who I'm going to save, and you get to find out at the end. No spoilers. Uh, that's not what he said. He said, I'm going to give you this thing to do that will assure you that when you put your faith in me and you repent of your sins and you commit to following me, that you have been washed. And it's, it's not just a gift. Here's the other thing. People, you know, you tend to, or the temptation is to think of baptism like a good work that you can do. But here's the thing. You can't actually do baptism. Baptism is something that's done to you. We receive baptism, right? And that means that baptism is not just a gift. It's also a privilege for us as Christians who get to baptize people. It is a privilege that I'm going to get to baptize two people today, and I'm honored by that, that God would give us a way to share His grace with others because we now have a way to share God's grace with a desperate world. A world that is desperate for assurance that God loves them. A world that is desperate to know that they can be forgiven. A world that is desperate to know that they can put their sinful past behind them. And baptism is a gift we've been given to help share that with people through Jesus Christ, to give them the assurance that Jesus Christ can and will do that for them. And for us who have experienced that washing, to know that we have been washed. Amen? At each sermon, we talked about uh, doing invitations. What we do is we encourage you to consider a next step. There's a few next steps you can, you can take. First of all, you can give your life to Jesus. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you haven't repented and put your faith in Him, today is the best day to do that. So we encourage you to make that commitment. You can come forward when we sing our last song after, the, our, last song after our first baptism. You can come forward, or you can talk to a, a pastor. You can talk to contact us in the church office. We would love to talk to you about that. You can give your life to Jesus. Hey, you can get baptized today. The water's warm. You want to get baptized today? We can add a couple more. You can also, if, if you want to get connected with a church body, you can uh, come to our Connect class. Our next one is next Sunday, uh, 12.30 to 2. And we just introduce you to who our church is, what we do, and how you can get involved. You can also join a small group, which is a way that we come together and we remind each other of who we are and we work out what it means to live out our baptism together as a community of people supporting each other and studying together and sharing sharing our hearts with each other. And finally, you can join, you can give back. You can join one of our service teams. You can get involved as a, as a greeter or uh, you know, help out at the Deacon's Day. or any, If you want to make any of these decisions, we encourage you to make that one of those, to check that on your connection card. I encourage you to think about that as we uh, witness our first baptism.